Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a more or less weekly discussion of current events in China. I'm Jeremy Goldcorn, hosting today as Kaiser Gore is busy performing with his band Chunqiu. Joining me today in the pop-up Chinese studios are, drumroll, David Moser, polymath, linguist, musician, and academic director of CET Beijing Chinese Studies. Hi, David. Hi. I didn't bring my drum, but sorry about that. Um, yeah, it's okay. Uh, we also have, uh, returning to the show, Christina Larson, a journalist who lives in Beijing, is contributing editor at Foreign Policy, uh, and also writes for other publications. Welcome back to Seneca, Christina. Thanks, Jeremy. And we are very, very happy today to have Brooke Lama for the first time on Seneca. Uh, he writes for National Geographic and a range of other publications. Uh, welcome to Seneca, Brooke. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. So our first topic today is based on Brooke's recent piece in the New York Times about subversive humor. His article examines two of the most interesting characters on the Chinese internet, cartoon director Pi San and blogger, writer, and activist Bei Feng, also known as Wen Yun Cha. Brooke, why did you decide to write this article, and why did you focus on these two characters? Um, I think that in, for many outsiders, there's, they're left with a, a perception of China as a kind of a humorless place. Mm. Um, and, of course, those of us living here know that that's not true, and it hasn't been true throughout Chinese history. Uh, I mean, and even during the most kind of repressive uh, imperial regimes, I mean, there was uh, the use of parody and satire was, was always a, a tool of the powerless. And, uh, you know, I think even, even back in Confucius's time when they were writing uh, histories, they would use the chuncho bifa, which is kind of the spring-autumn brush method, which, where you could read between the lines. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's happened uh, through history through the Qing dynasty with Lu Xun uh, doing parodies that would, would skewer the pompous and, and the powerful, and uh, even through the present day. And I think if you read David's uh, brilliant article about... Uh, uh, the, the rise and fall of, of crosstalk, you see that a lot of this had gone underground. And what's different today is that it's all popped up into the, uh, into the Internet. So I thought that this would be something interesting to look at. And uh, rather than do a story on the general phenomenon, I wanted to find two individuals who were, who were actually producing a certain kind of humor. And it's, there, are so many, there are so many varieties of it uh, that it was very difficult. But I did land on uh, Pisan and Beifeng, uh, or Wen Yunchao, because they represented uh, different types, and they also approached it, they, they thought about it in very different ways. One is a, a cartoonist who uses animation as, uh, as a way to do social commentary, but also to uh, vent some of his frustrations about what's going on in society. Uh, Wen Yunchao uh, is much more, kind of wears uh, his activism on his sleeve a little bit more, and, and he is an activist first, and looks for humorous campaigns to kind of as an instrument to to mobilize people, whereas Pisan doesn't think about mobilization. 
and also because their their stories end up quite differently. And this whole story changed in the last uh, six to eight months as they both encountered kind of a closing of the of the space that was available for them to express uh, certain kinds of humor. Uh, and that's what I found was that's kind of turned the story, uh, kind of focused the story for me on the, the two of them, one of whom ended up living in Hong Kong in exile and the other one who's, who's still here in Beijing. Let's uh, just, for people who haven't actually seen uh, P. Sun's cartoons, uh, look at, the, I think the one that made him internationally famous was uh, before Spring Festival this year, the, 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 the bunnies rising up in revolution. It was a Spring Festival greeting card. Um, so uh, what, what happened in this cartoon? Well, th- this cartoon uh, actually begins as a, as a nursery rhyme with this kind of soothing music in the background, and then suddenly it lurches into this heavy, grating, heavy metal music and uh, turns into a kind of a nightmare where the, the bunnies uh, who represent the Chinese people uh, suffer all sorts of abuses from their, their overlords who happen to be tigers, which is the outgoing uh, zodiac sign. Uh, in the end, and this is kind and of... Maybe one should say that all of these abuses are references to oh, things that's right. that have actually happened, most yeah. of them in the last uh, two years. That's so right. Anybody watching... My dad is Li Gang, where the you know, kid of the police official uh, did a hit and run and... Mm. Poison milk uh, yeah. scandal is in there, right? Yes. Yeah. Any, anybody watching it who, who is, uh, kind of spends any time on the Chinese internet would recognize the references and get the jokes. In the end, though, it turns into the rabbits actually end up in full-out revolt uh, against the tigers. And this is what really made it uh, provocative, especially because it landed right at the time that the kind of uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt were getting underway. So it was a, the, the timing was as interesting as the content almost. Maybe for my sake, to refresh my memory, was that uh, posted on the net for a while and, and then taken off and banned? And it, it wasn't banned technically because it was taken off so quickly. I mean, it was put up before Spring Festival, and I don't think it lasted longer than about 12 hours on Chinese websites. No, so it did not people, even last till Spring Festival. Yeah. Festival. So a lot of people pulled it down really quick, otherwise it wouldn't have so many copies floating around, right? Yes, yeah. and, uh, you know, people copied it to YouTube, yeah. so it's now safe on YouTube. Yeah, good. <laughs> I mean, it pr- proliferated very quickly in the first 12 hours. It was kind of mes- metastasized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was a, the race to, to pull it down. And every, the companies were taking responsibility themselves to take it down. Now, this wasn't necessarily the government putting out an order to take it down. Mm-hmm. What's your sense? How, how, how much more of this kind of thing is there now compared to, say, two or three years ago in China? Uh, well, I think because of the Internet, obviously, there's there's a, a lot of it. This wouldn't have been possible many years ago. I think what's happened with the Internet is uh, sort of this, this cat and mouse game where uh, the Internet, the, the, by its very nature, is censorable only if you know have the exact string that you want to expunge from the, from the net. So people got very good at, you know, using uh, alternate... Uh, typography. Jeremy, you've even resorted to that on your early incarnations, Danway. Yeah, we'd use Cyrillic letters yeah. that look like uh, right. Roman letters, but so actually, uh, actually, something that's humorous in and of itself is is you go to uh, some of these things I found of the uh, some somehow some of Baidu's officially uh, or, or secret in-house censorship documents saying look for these strings or try to you know uh, try to delete these strings. It's pretty funny just looking at them. Because there'll be different classes of them. For example, under you know uh, Falun Gong, there's FLG, there's Falun Gong, there's, and there's like 500 vari- variants of this simple string. And it gets kind of silly after a while that that the the very 
the very the very hope that you're going to actually find all these and get rid of these all these references to Fungor is in, is impossible. So this cat and mouse game has has sort of given rise to uh, a, a fun activity of sort of finding how far can I go, what kind of clever meme can I create that's coded in a, in a way that that defies the censors and at the same time is immediately. Uh, obvious to everyone what the meaning is. Right. So you have the river crabs and all this kind of thing has caught on as, as originally just a, a joke to evade the censors, and now it's become a term in and of itself. Right. When, one very simple point. It's in the last two years that we saw Weibo, uh, you know, become a phenomenon in China, and Weibo allows, you know, the, these funny jokes as well as anything else to be shared very quickly. And that allows many people to, you know, have the information or to download, you know, go to a link and download something. But it also creates, I think, a kind of a sense of a shared community. If you see something has been retweeted 7,000 times, then you know that there's 7,000 other people like you who mm. are in on the joke. And I think, I don't know if that gives people more courage, but but there is something that does that makes a joke more fun, more special, more powerful than if you just read it and laugh to yourself in a paper book. I, I definitely think it, it, this kind of humor is a social glue. I mean, we can, you know, you can say uh, that the 500 million users of the Internet in China do not all engage in this kind of humor. Mm. Uh, but being on the Internet, you learn to recognize and to understand at least what some of these things mean. And so you, everybody can be in on the joke, and that's part of it. Even if, even if uh, people are not really that interested in, in, in the particular social commentary, they're at least just to kind of understand what's happening on the net, you have to be in on the joke. And that's the sense of, of community, I think, that is, 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 is quite, it can be quite powerful and, and perhaps uh, troubling for, for authorities. And the, and the fun of it is the subversive aspect, that, that, it's, that it's forbidden. Or it's a, there was a... I can't remember who it was now, but a famous French king, supposedly, who on tasting ice cream for the first time said, uh, what? but this is delicious. What a pity it isn't forbidden. <laughs> and it's sort of like an Internet meme is like that. You know, it's, it's, it's like, oh, this is very funny. It's too bad it's not censored in a way. I mean, if only when it becomes censored or there's an, some aggravation about it then it becomes really fun. And, and there is a certain, I mean, there's a kind of attitude, I think, that is uh, a part of this, which maybe is best expressed by uh, one of the memes that has been popular in the last few years of that there's a Chinese character that's uh, pronounced Jung, uh, and it looks yeah. like a sort of unha- the opposite of a smiley face. And I, I can't remember what the character means. It's sort of, it's not really used. It's archaic. Uh, well, I tell you, it's, uh, yes, they're, what they're, they're mean, confusing. David? There's Jiong, it, but Jiong. There's, there is a character that does mean, in fact, awkward, uh, you know, uh, uncomfortable, but it's actually not that character. But, but they've taken that one, which is also pronounced Jiong, because it looks like a face that's in grimacing or something yeah. like that. And, uh, but it, it originally, the, the sound is a word Jiong, which actually, to Chinese ears, is, evokes that word of Awkward. Discomfort. Discomfort. But, I mean, it's also, it can be used to mean surprising. Yeah. It can be used to mean, you know, you've just had your house demolished by the local government. Yeah. It, it, it's used sure. to express a variety of... <laughs> WTF in, in English. <laughs> I mean, I think that humor in this case online or even offline in China, especially at this moment, it's a vessel for many things. One of them is this, as you expressed, David, a delight in getting around what's forbidden or getting around what's forbidden for five minutes or five hours or maybe even five days. But I also think there's a there's a line in Brooks' piece, um, I can't remember which character it referred to, but was talking about a cycling through of emotions and that humor 
was a way to express both being rebellious and being resigned. Um, not terribly long ago, I had reason to visit Ai Weiwei for a, a photo shoot for an upcoming FP project. And there's two security cameras in front of his door that face his door. And they've been there for quite a while. And recently he had gone out and hung red lanterns on each of them. <laughs> because what else is he going to do? And he's, he's making a joke. It's not yeah. online. It's not something that everyone sees. But that was all he could do. And yeah. there was a – it was funny. I laughed. But there was a desperate note to and it. You know, that's slightly subversive too to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think this speaks to the kind of the big issue hanging over the internet here and, and elsewhere. And this is is – it, is it kind of just a means for venting frustration and resignation or is it actually a, a weapon of the weak as James C. Scott, the anthropologist, would say, which is something that can be utilized uh, as, as kind of undermining power itself? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, on both accounts, it's probably a mixture of both. Yeah. I think the, I mean, the Communist Party of China <clears throat> is dedicating incredible resources to making sure that this doesn't become a, you know, a weapon that the weak can use. Um, you know, the, the, the censorship apparatus is vast, and I, it's dedicated to exactly making sure that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me also that the party has had to make some decisions in the last decade because of the Internet, which is things that are worth going after and things that they just give up on. And I think in cyberspace, there are whole, there are whole swaths of, of domains that you just have to say there's just really no way you can do it. And maybe some of these typography games we're talking about are something that they've really – I mean, they're still trying, but I think they don't really care about it that much anymore. And, you know, as depressing as it can be to contemplate uh, the mechanisms of control, I mean, if one thinks back to, say, 1992 when there were the Wenhua Shan, the mm-hmm. culture T-shirts, so – you know, people had T-shirts saying things like, uh, "What was the like?" Fanjie, barely wore or something you know, like so that. So, like, yeah. I, I'm, you know, I'm annoyed. Leave me alone. Yeah. And these were actually banned in Beijing, and yeah. people who sold them got into trouble. I mean, you know, things have progressed. Well, actually, right? interesting though, th- there's an interesting example because one, th- they started to become banned. You're right. You know, these things that they were slightly subvert. They weren't really subversive. They were just, they were just uh, not displaying a healthy. Right. They were just attitude. displaying the, the law by seeing the ordinary people's frustrations. So, so at Beida, they begin to print these Lei Feng T-shirts, and they would actually wear these Lei Feng T-shirts. Now, I thought that was wonderfully subversive because what ca- what's more subversive than actually going full hog and doing exactly what the party supposedly wants you to do, which is to promote Lei Feng, right? But it's so ludicrous that anyone actually would wear one of those T-shirts at that time that it was a statement in and of itself. But how are they going to ban it? I mean, they can't say, no more Lei Feng T-shirts. Why? Why? On what principle? You know, you say we should we should elevate Lei Feng, Xue Lei Feng, right? So I think that was a, a primitive example of this internet phenomenon that we're talking about, where they they find a way to make something invisible or to make something have a dual meaning. Uh, it was very clever. One of the, to me, most remarkable details of Brooks' piece was just to be reminded that the Great Firewall, which we think might have existed since before the Great Wall, actually began in 2003. Well, it was con- conceived in 90, 1998, but not actually fully implemented until 2003. Right. Yeah. right. I mean, this is, a, this is a new and evolving thing. Yeah. But I would just make the comment, though, that the, the, the government also has to be very savvy. They have to be careful. Uh, they are listening much more closely to public opinion than they ever have been before. And they're actually encouraging local officials and even the police to do microblogs to try to be popular. Of course, it also suffers from this kind of paucity of humor. It has a hard time being funny. 
Uh, but I think they're, they're as, as you said, David, it's true. They, they have to pick their fight. They pick their battles. And, you know, it's in, almost impossible to catch up to every iteration, every, every layer of meaning and change of, 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 of typography or, right. or, or wording. But, you know, they do have to do it in a way that's somewhat sensitive. And the Internet is a very uh, interesting space because it, it, it is a hugely important economic resource right. for them and for the future, and they can't afford to shut it down. So they have to be, have a little bit of flexibility in, in terms of how they deal with the content. And that's, this is a very interesting game, and it, it creates the kind of cat-and-mouse game that I, I tried to describe in the article. What? I just, I have a, just, just a point of curiosity here. Uh, I, I think it was in your article you said 50,000 uh, online censors. The, the usual, the, that's a new apocryphal number. I mean, yeah. usually it was 30,000 for many years, and now it's 50. Where did you get that new apocryphal well, number? Well, there's several, several people, I mean, and there, are, there is no uh, specific number. I, I would say that tens of thousands is probably the, the way to put yeah. it more accurately. I, I, I mean, there are people like uh, Xiao Chang at, at the China Digital Times who believes it actually is actually greater than 100,000. Really? If you count all of the, every well, department you, of... If you count uh, the uh, self-censorship going on, in, uh, of the people who are, are, are in charge of... Internet monitoring bureaus. Yeah, yeah. Thing is, then it gets way, way yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, when you when you count because in the in the in the at a national level, you're talking you're talking about every single ministry and departments yeah. and ministries, and it's not simply the uh, the, the public security that's in, right. in charge of this. And, and if you take that down to the provincial and local levels, I guess it's impossible to actually calculate. Right. So I guess that was that was a little silly to try to actually put a specific number on it. Well, I'd like to have one, one one more thing, and then I think we should move on to our next topic. The Great Firewall, actually, the, the word was coined by Jeremy Barmay and Sung Ye in an mm. article written in 1997, uh, in Wired, published in Wired magazine. And uh, 1996 was when the first, uh, you know, commercial, uh, you know, consumer internet connections became available. So, uh, you know, the technology as it is now is quite new. But I, I think right from the very beginning, uh, the relevant organs have been considering how to restrict it, which is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the way it is. Um, let's move on to our next topic, um, the, which one might also refer to as, as something humorous, uh, is uh, <laughs> the Global <laughs> Times. <laughs> we all laughed when you mentioned the name, yes. Um, so, Christina, you just uh, had a story in Foreign Policy uh, which was titled China's Fox News uh, and taglined Meet Global Times, the angry Chinese government mouthpiece that makes Bill O'Reilly seem fair and balanced. <laughs> um, so, uh, Christina, w what is Global Times? Is it really the equivalent of Fox News? <laughs> um, uh, so, Global Times is, a, is a, the, one of the newspapers here in China. It's third by circulation, 2.4, well, a reported 2.4 million readers. Um, of the Chinese print edition. There's also an English language edition. Um, maybe I should start by saying how I started to write the article. Yes. Was that okay? As just as a sort of a starting point, um, and then and then give some context. But I was part of a invited to be part of a delegation of American um, editors and academics. Um, uh, at a conference here, and, and one of the places that we stopped to visit in was the newsroom of the Global Times. And, and I, like many of you, had been aware of the Global Times as a, as a place that produced very strident editorials. But I became very interested just listening to the editor-in-chief, uh, Hu Shijin, talk about what the mission of the paper was. Having myself worked at two um, publications in the U.S., I'm very aware that the character of a publication 
is very related to the character and the mission of the editor-in-chief. And Global Times is a very different character than other state-run newspapers in China, for better and worse, better or worse, one can make different arguments. Uh, and he's different than other <laughs> editors that I've seen speak. That was the first thing that interested me. The second thing that interested me was is that after the sort of group broke up, one of the other editors came up to me and he said, I'm the one who wrote the editorial attacking your magazine's failed state index. But he said it in such a way, it, was, it wasn't an insult. It was almost, not quite, it was almost a compliment or it was almost meant to signal we're part of the same conversation, we're on the same page. <laughs> and it was not at all what I expected. And I thought, you know what, they write these, out, these things that seem outrageous to us as readers and I don't quite understand why they do it. And that's interesting to me. And it doesn't come out of sort of hate or vitriol, which might be your first impulse if you look at the headlines. And so that's why I began doing some research um, and meeting with some of the staffers. But, but I focused the piece around a, a sort of a mini profile of the editor-in-chief, because I really think he's the one who co-writes every lead editorial and, and really is involved, not just on a broad level, but on a, on a micromanaging level as well. So it's his baby. He really it's feels more it. than his baby, <laughs> yes. And it's a very commercially successful... Uh, I, I mean, I think that's one thing one must be clear about because I think outside of China, people tend to think it's a Communist Party mouthpiece, it's propaganda, which it may be to an extent, but one of the reasons it's produced like that is because it sells, right? It's like a Rupert Murdoch. Mm. I mean, it is a bit like Fox News. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it sells. It, it does exactly. well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that was the most fascinating thing about the article is that this guy has actually figured, <clears throat> they figured out a way to, to turn patriotism into a commercial success. And mm. that, you know, I, was, I was wondering, though, uh, is the, how big of a difference is there between kind of the editorials, the strident editorials that we all kind of see, and, and, and maybe they have, maybe they actually write with a slight wink and a nod as well, but and the actual coverage, because from what I understand, they also do some some relatively straightforward investigations and uh, into r real issues. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should we should also clarify when we're talking about news, if we're talking about the Chinese or the English edition. Um, again, the Chinese. Is let's talk about the Chinese first okay. and ignore the English, because that's well, let's get to it's, that in yeah, a little sure. bit. It's a whole different kettle of fish. That's true, actually. Right. Yeah. Well, I, so the Chinese is mainly focused on international news, um, and some of which you know, has a sort of a defensive, you know, the headlines will be things like, you know, Indian, U.S. sign pact, you know, frustrate China or the Senate vote about currency menaces China. So it has this kind of a, at least a packaging. But I, but I think that the coverage isn't as imbued with this sort of jingoistic attitude as the editorials. And then to talk for just a second about the English edition, they've done some really quite, in, for China, hard-hitting investigative pieces. And as long as they end up with a nationalist point, it gives them a little bit more cover, if they're smart about it, to cover issues mm -hmm. or to propose topics that others might be left off the table. And, and one you know article that I just thought would have been brilliant in any paper. Um, was, Are we talking about Chinese or English now? Uh, this one is, a, it was in the Chinese and translated into the Ch English. Um, this is the expose on the Sinopec liquor bill. Hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So it's not Fox News, actually. I have to admit, Jeremy, that writers don't always write our headlines, but I liked the analogy. <laughs> 
I, it strikes me, uh, you know, in addition to the, the the main editorial, whatever that may be, usually when I buy the Chinese version of the Global Times, there's usually uh, toward the end several uh, articles on social issues or something, but they all have editorial uh, content or, or editorial stances that are usually pretty blatantly nationalistic, even sometimes jingoistic. They're usually the kind of things that you hear among uh, the, like the young, you know, angry internet youth and these kind of things. Usually, have the the the, the type of stances like uh, it's time for the to China to start dialoguing on an even footing with the West, or it's time that we, uh, you know, uh, reject this notion of universal values, which was a trope for a long time. And there's and there's sometimes even two or three articles with a similar theme that are on the same right. page. But then you- and, so, and even sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll excerpt or translate a foreign article that takes a point of view that they either want to take issue with or support something that they're – so very often the last few – last whole two sections, pages, are almost screeds or sort of you know little themed pockets of information that the, the reader wants to get caught up in it is like reading this right. whole thing. It's, got, it's a very, very focused message. It's not a bunch of random stuff. It's whoever plans that really has an, a – you know, Page five, we're going to really hit this issue. Stuff to make your blood boil. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, I do, th- I do want to emphasize there really is a range. I mean, you know, when they, w- the coverage of the recent um, uh, subway crash in Shanghai mm-hmm. was really calling out, you know, the government for not true, having yeah. adequate, you know, um, precautions for right. signaling and other things and making a connection between that and coal mine accidents. I think that the thing that's easiest to talk about and is funniest and, and tickles our funny bone or whatnot it is these terrible jingoistic articles. But I, I do want to point out there's quite a range of it. And when you meet the people who work there, they have quite a range of agendas themselves. And there's something that knits them all together. But to say that there's only one kind of Global Times piece, I think, would be to yeah. Yeah, oversimplify. Would you, would you say that there's just a, 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 a sharp divide between the, the stories that they, that actually address international issues and those that d- address domestic issues, as you mentioned in the Shanghai subway crash, uh, they were quite out front uh, right. compared to at least some, maybe not uh, some of the southern papers, but compared to their their mothership, they were out front in terms of talking about changes that needed to be made. Their mothership made. being the People's Daily, People's yeah, Daily, yes. And then, I mean, I also remember earlier in the year they did a long kind of investigate or anal- analytical piece about the dangers of putting up dams in, in uh, the, the rivers right. in Yunnan, which was actually a very straightforward piece that ended up on a side that was actually gave the government little room to continue with, with uh, the kind of dam building uh, that, that's been going on down there. So I was just wondering, is this, is this uh, would the foreign, kind of the jingoistic, as you call it, foreign editorials and coverage, does that actually give them cover to do whatever they want in, inside yeah. the country? And as long as they maintain a kind of a hardline nationalist uh, foreign face, uh, face out to the rest of the world, can they yeah. kind of cover things as they wish and in, in, a, in a more eclectic way in, to some extent, To some extent, I think that's true. If there's a shield, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm criticizing the party from within the party. I'm okay. one of you, and I want to, mm-hmm. you know, offer some advice mm-hmm. as, a, as a true patriot. I think absolutely, and that's what some of them expressed to me. I, I do think, I, I do also want to point out that not all of the domestic coverage is, is hard-hitting and you know, investigative. They, they've done some interesting pieces, actually, about Weibo, 
as a, a rumor mongering machine and saying, <laughs> yeah. you know, we should have more censorship, which is interesting because the editor in chief has something like 1.4 million Weibo followers, so he's not abstaining from he's not from spreading this rumors. De- this this evil <laughs> evil uh, uh, social media. But I think one thing that that unifies everything that we've just talked about, whether they're you know liberal or conservative, outrageous or or you know investigative articles that Global Times has that is distinct to me from something like, you know, the People's Daily or certainly China's Daily, the, the, you know, to pick in English and a Chinese language newspaper, is, is they really try to follow and do a pretty good job the pulse of a conversation. They're interested, especially the editor chief, in what people are talking about, what, what, what's the meme on the Internet, what is the conversation, and how do we inject Global Times viewpoint into that and try to influence it and because we're part of this conversation, get readers. Whereas I think that other publications who just got promoted in the, you know, the Transportation Bureau, great, let's run an article about that. And, and they're, they're essentially bureaucratic organizations that might not know what a news peg is or hot news story if it came and sat down, you know, on the, the chair opposite them. And I, I think that, to me, is, you know, again, with Global Times, we can argue about the impact of it, but that's a skill. That's a skill set that most Chinese newspaper editors don't have and that the folks at Global Times do have. Let's have a quick uh, review of the English then before we move on to our final section. What do you think of the English Global Times, Brooke? Well, as I was just saying, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite entertaining sometimes. And uh, But I, I have found certain uh, coverage of internal issues in China that are quite quite helpful. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's they don't have necessarily some of the subversive headline writers that you find in some of the other English language editions, which are kind of little, have little gnomic jokes that are in the headlines. But I mean, I, th- I, you know, I, I think that the, the, the coverage is uh, a little sensational, but it's, uh, yeah, I find certain nuggets that are actually quite worthwhile. Uh, I find the, the the polemical tone and everything that you find in the Chinese version a bit attenuated in the English version because they perforce have to have a lot of English speaking and some and often foreign staff on there who uh, do all kinds of they play all kinds of tricks. We uh, I don't know if you can link to these. We've talked about these. They've spread around the internet. Some very funny uh, English editorials that uh, maybe to a Chinese reader, the humor would slip by. There's a, there's a double entendre there, a tone a joke going on. Uh, it was quite cl- a good one the other day about massage parlors, which appeared to me to be a joke, where yes. the person was saying, you know, your right in a massage parlor is not to have sex with the masseur kind of yes. thing. <laughs> well, th- these, when these editorials come out, very often uh, a few of us send each other tweets or something yeah. uh, to confirm this is a joke, right? Because sometimes <laughs> it's so subtle. There was one uh, uh, that was talking about um, uh, complaining about some body, some uh, show, or I don't know what it was exactly, but where we're women were putting, I think it was uh, iPhones in their busts, in oh, their bras. that was Feng. Yeah, Hale, yeah, we're putting it in their, in their bras and, in order to, and then like taking photos or, you know, uh, videos inside the bra with their breasts jiggling around there. That and sounds the, horribly unsexy. 
Well, <laughs> well, the, the point was that, that as you're reading this, you're saying, you know, this is crazy as an editorial. And then the, <laughs> then, then the point of the editorial was that this was unfair to the Chinese contestants because we all know that they are not as well endowed as the foreign ones. So and at this point, them? I said, this has to be a But who joke. writes these and who, who approves them? Well, that's they're, my they're point. They're so funny. My, the, the theory, we have many theories, but one of the theories is perhaps you have some very savvy, funny you know, English or a foreign editor there who, who's seeing how far he or she can get away, how far they can go. And like, let's write something that seems plausible enough if you don't have a total mastery of English. And you think, well, maybe someone might have this, this notion. But to anyone who is an English speaker and, he, and can feel the Monty Python-esque tone of it, says, this has got to be a joke. That's the only thing. The only other explanation is that they know it's a joke and they're letting them do it. And but I, I think sometimes also the demands of propaganda sort of uh, produce articles that it is impossible to tell if it's supposed to be funny or not. I mean, there, w- there, there was one about uh, what they called the fog. You know, I mean, this week in Beijing has been the most appalling yeah. pollution. And there was an article about how we shouldn't worry so much about the fog. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> the way it was written made me think, you know, you know actually, they probably have a serious propaganda point here, as, you know, don't listen to the American embassy's tweets of the air quality. And, right. you know, this is something that you do see in the official media. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who wrote it. <laughs> sometimes, again, what, you can sometimes do satire by merely quoting word for word what the other person <clears> said. There, there, there was a, a Tina Fey, a wonderful Tina Fey uh, satire of Sarah Palin, where she literally quoted what Sarah Palin said. No, and had, it was funny. They had William Shatner come on and read it. Remember ah, that's that? another way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. So it's the same kind of dynamic going yes. on here. Okay, we're actually running a little over time. Uh, let's get on to our final section, recommendations. Um, so, Brooke, have you got something to recommend to our listeners? Sure. Um, I recently saw a, a very interesting documentary, part of a kind of a, a spate of new documentaries coming out uh, by independent filmmakers in China. This one was called Tra- The Transition Period by uh, Joe Ha, who's a uh, uh, he used to work as a photographer at Southern Metropolis, and he's actually most famous for having produced uh, the uh, the film about uh, the Gaokao, the uh, uh, the test uh, that high school students all take. And this one is actually follows a county party secretary in central Hunan for three months, and he got incredible access, basically sitting like uh, a fly on the wall watching this guy deal with uh, local construction companies and, and, and uh, foreigners who are trying to, to do business in his county. Uh, and, uh, for example, in one, in one case, uh, the construction company wanted to, was trying to build a, a, a building that was 26 stories tall, and they had actually already started building it and put the foundation, and he said, well, actually, it would be much more, bring much more prestige to the county if you could make it 33 stories. That's only seven more stories. You can do it, right? <laughs> and so they, they kind of have no choice, but okay, we're putting seven more stories on this. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's both funny unintentionally, and, uh, uh, the guy, but it also leaves you with a sense of uh, kind of these guys are, are are in a very slippery system, uh, and they all try. You know, they, they have to do sometimes what they do uh, to to make things work. And you're left at the end with a, a kind of a, a question of of is this guy uh, really corrupt, or is he is he just kind of part of a system that's a little a little uh, shady? Right, Christina. Uh, well, I wanted to recommend a, a blog, a long blog post by Ian Johnson on the. Uh, website of the New York Review of Books entitled uh, Are China's Rulers Getting Religion? And he begins by talking about the recent conference uh, here in Beijing, party conference on culture and and culture reform in China, and talks about this also as a moment of 
of moral crisis in a way, citing the instance that I'm sure you all know of, of the toddler in um, Shanghai who was run over and... and Guangzhou, more, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and more than a dozen people walked by and before anyone began to pay any attention to it. And there being a, a sort of a vacuum that people needing to put values in to, and that the government... Is it or is it not recognizing that religion has a role to fill this vacuum or that it's dangerous to have a society in which there's no anchor beyond money and ambition for people to create a compass in their life? And then looking at the extent to which Taoism might be more preferable to Christianity as a as a religion that the, the party could live with. So yeah. it explores Amen. a lot of themes. But Amen. Okay. Amen. You mean Taoism is Taoism is a better a better idea for yeah, China than Christianity. Yeah, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, Taoism also doesn't actually commit you to anything, so that's quite useful for the the government because, you know, you can kind of go with the flow and when you need to, um, <laughs> <laughs> when you need to bash people over the head, you know, that can be part of Taoism. Right. Anyway, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Next. Okay, David. well, I'd like to recommend a new book called Who's Afraid of China? The Challenge of Chinese Soft Power by Michael Barr. Uh, it's a short book, which I think, I think any book about a, a topic this timely has got to be short because it's going to be outdated soon. So uh, I, I appreciate books that are short enough to read uh, on a long commute, <laughs> which this sort of is. But... Uh, it touches what I like about it. There, there have been several books on Chinese soft power. This one seems to touch on a lot more bases than the others, and it tends to do it in a, in a very uh, subtle way, in a sensitive way. It talks about things like it talks about uh, areas that sometimes are not talked about, such as Africa, and the and Zhenghe. They're using Zhenghe as an example uh, in the TV series and everything as quintessential Chinese soft power, which is we don't colonize. We merely just show our glory throughout the world, and then people will come to us because we're so great. Uh, and also talks about a- a- issues such as language, such as Mandarin in its many different manifestations, soft power not only for foreigners but also for the Chinese di- diaspora. So, you know, as- aspects you don't normally normally seem talked about in a book about Chinese soft power. And it's, uh, it's just thought-provoking. Thanks, David. And then I'll quickly end off with a quick re- recommendation by a, it's a, an, a book for the iPad and Kindle by an old friend of mine named Liu Jing. It's called Understanding China Through Comics. And uh, you can get it on the iTunes store and I think the Kindle store. And it uh, basically takes its uh, story from classic, uh, classical uh, Chinese history texts uh, and it's all comics drawn by Liu Jing himself. Um, so, on that note, thank you very much for participating in tonight's podcast. And we'll see our listeners uh, next week. Was this subversive enough for you, this podcast? Uh, it, it, it was <laughs> about 8 out of 10 on the okay. subversive. Yeah, our viewers <laughs> don't know what Jeremy's worn, but we'll keep that to ourselves. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, Or hasn't worn. <laughs>